0: So with that, um, I've been tasked to kind of kick off this series, Cultural Counterfeits. And today we're going to be in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. The title of today's message is, Go and Sin No More, as we see Jesus have this encounter with this woman that was caught in adultery. I'm reading out of the ESV, John 8, 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placing her in the midst, and they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? And they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down. And wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Lord, there is beauty in this passage. There's truth in this passage. There's grace in this passage. There's gospel in this passage. And we pray, Lord, that we would see it all and that you would help us, Lord, as we live in an age where evil is blatant, it's arrogant. It's, uh, it's bold, and yet you call us to be uh, your lights, your witnesses, but also to do that in a way that uh, represents your love and your grace and your power. So help us, Lord. Shape us through this text to be uh, messengers, ambassadors, as it says in 2 Corinthians, ambassadors of the message of reconciliation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And by the way, in saying amen... Uh, There's one amen that uh, I certainly miss hearing here, our brother Louie. And so I just honor him and remember him. This is my first time back since he went to be with the Lord. And I'm sure that he's saying amen to a better sermon in a better place. Amen. Is that the Bill's Dolphins thing rearing its head again? Okay. All right, just so you know like how fair I am, Rohan Paddock left his Bill's hat at the retreat last night, and my boys and I did not destroy it (laughs) or do anything to damage it. We brought it here and gave it back to him, so just remember that. Okay. So in this story, we have a scene where a bunch of religious guys are ready to put a woman to death for adultery because she'd been caught in the act. And in this famous passage, Jesus tells those accusers who are without sin that they should cast the first stone. And even though Jesus was God and had made laws against adultery, Jesus disperses her accusers, gives her back her life and tells her he doesn't condemn her. He's not here to see her punished but he's here to free her from condemnation. This lines up with what Jesus said about himself in John 3, very famous couple verses. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus does not come to condemn the world, but to save it. And in John 8, he's not there to condemn this woman, but he's there to save her. And we need to hear this more than anything This morning, when we're talking about this topic of sexual sin, because too often the church has spoken about sexual sin in a way that hurts people inside and outside the church. So I wanted to start through the grid of John chapter 8 and Jesus' interaction with this sexual sinner, I think to give us some framework of how we are to deal with uh, this spirit of the age and this issue in society today as we're constantly confronted with sexual sin. And here we have a model in Jesus for how to deal with sexuality in our culture. There's a woman who has not kept herself pure, yet Jesus is approaching her with forgiveness and grace, no condemnation at all. And the question that often comes up is, what's the Bible's teaching about sex and how much of it applies today? Now, I know there's likely people here that are all over the map, Christians and non-Christians, people who want to follow the Bible and people who don't. And my hope in this message this morning is that all of us would see a clear picture of the love of God for sexual sinners, and that we'd hear a compelling call to the beauty of biblical sexuality. And my hope for Christians is that what we see in Jesus, what you hear taught here in John 8, will be a good model for how we speak to culture, a culture that is asking these questions. What I'd like to do today is walk through John chapter 8, walk through this text of Scripture, and see how our Savior handles sexual sin and a sexual sinner so that we might approach this whole issue of sexuality in our culture with a Christ-like attitude and give a picture of redeemed sexuality. Uh, not that kind of picture, just, you know, what kind of picture I'm talking about. Four ways Jesus responds. Number one, we see immediately that he refuses to join in the injustice that is happening against this woman. Proverbs 11:1 says the Lord hates dishonest scales. And that's what was happening here, and we're going to see that in a minute. These guys have caught a woman in the act of committing adultery. She's sleeping with someone that is married to someone else. And they bring her for a stoning, which is what the law of Moses required. And to commit an act of adultery in this day, was considered an act of high treason against the Jewish nation. It undermined the fundamental building block of society, which was marriage. God was calling his people in Israel to build a nation that was strong and secure and would become a lighthouse to the world so that they could see the blessing of God on display among all nations. So to attack marriage by committing adultery in their minds was like attacking the country. But in the law, even in their law, there was all kinds of protections and exceptions, and there was still a presumption of innocence. The law was strict for sure, but it wasn't unfair, and it wasn't unjust. And has anybody noticed that these guys are only bringing a woman to Jesus? Not a woman and a man. She was caught in the act of adultery. Now, I didn't go to med school, not a doctor, but I'm pretty sure to be caught in the act of adultery, there's got to be another person involved. I'm not a doctor, though, so I'm not sure. (laughs) But they've singled her out, and they've let the guy go. And that is super unfair. So there's this unjust singling out happening here with this woman. They're suggesting that a female sexual sinner is worse than a male sexual sinner. And they're both doing the same thing, and the guy's going back to work while she's about to be executed. And this is not even close to how the law was written in the Bible. It's not just. And Jesus was not going to play along and join in their injustice against this woman. And this happens today in how we handle sexual sin in the culture around us too, doesn't it? We tend to single out certain sexual sinners for condemnation and allow the rest to disappear off our radar screens. While Jesus said all forms of lust are adultery, we single out certain people with certain sexual sins and subject them to social or spiritual stoning allowing other sexual sinners to get off scot-free. And usually, the ones we let off the hook are the ones who sin like we do. Because that's understandable. That's just weakness. But if it's a type of sin that you're not tempted by, we get out the rocks, pass them around. Because here's, here's the nature of sin within us. We tend to condemn people who don't sin like us. Christians are notorious for singling out, for example, homosexuals while playing down our our own lusts and our own sins. So we often handle sexuality in an unfair way. Back to Proverbs one eleven, right? The Lord hates dishonest scales. But we're supposed to be followers of Jesus who don't handle these things in an unfair way. Uh, there's a, There's a book by Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace. And he tells a story in the book about his encounter with a prostitute who was very near a church that he knew that that uh, he thought had good theology and, and could help her and, and this woman was opening up to Christ as he's talking to her on the street and he said, You should go to you should go to church. You go to, you should go to this church. And she said, Why would I want to go to church? Especially that church. He says, What do you mean? She goes, I already I already feel she said terrible enough about my sin. And so her view was this antagonism toward the church that if she walked in she was going to be She was going to be stoned that people were going to pick up the rocks when they found out she was a prostitute. And yet Jesus had a prostitute that was redeemed that was in his own traveling church in Mary Magdalene. So Jesus refuses to participate in their singling out. He refuses to participate in their injustice. It's a good model for us. Number two, Jesus exposes their failure to see their own sins. Verse seven, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and rode on the ground. Now he's not saying that you can only judge someone else's sin if you are free from all sin. God forbid. We wouldn't have a society that would upset all order in society. A cop couldn't arrest someone for theft. Or they couldn't stop anybody for breaking the speed limit if, they, if the cop had sin in their own life. Or if they ever broke the speed limit. But we don't. that, that doesn't work in... Society, we never even have a society. If you ever commit a sin or a crime, it has to be handled by people who are also fallen and broken like you, by people who have also committed sins and crimes, because there are no people in this world who haven't sinned. So Jesus is not saying only perfect people can confront sin or deal with a crime or speak the truth about that. Jesus is saying to these guys, if you haven't sinned like her, throw a stone. Throw the first one. He's calling them to look at their own hearts and evaluate whether they too are sexual sinners. And then he writes on the ground. Now we don't know what he was writing. I think all of us who have any of us who have studied this text maybe have heard theories and you know he's writing. I've heard he's writing the names of their lovers. You know, uh, I've heard all kinds of things. But ultimately, the scripture doesn't tell us, so we have to be silent where the Bible's silent. Uh, it would just be a guess to say what he's writing. But for some reason, as he's writing, they disperse. They drop their stones and they disperse. They have time to think about his statement. And they all start walking away, realizing that they've sinned just like this woman has. And he's turned the tables on them. And he's exposed that they were just as guilty as she was by saying, go ahead and throw a stone at her if you don't deserve stoning for the same thing. And this is so important for us to see before we define what's a sexual sin and what isn't. When we draw categories, we have to keep in mind that we are sinners just like them. They are not worse than me. Adultery is not just something that happens when we have sex, but Jesus says it happens in the heart. Matthew 5, 27, he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And like the disciples said, who then can be saved? <laughs> who hasn't committed this sin? So this was not Jesus like, giving us legalism and a way to attain righteousness before God through keeping the law. He was actually giving us a higher view of the law in his Sermon on the Mount by saying the law doesn't simply touch the external. It actually touches the internal. The law goes deep into the heart and it weighs and measures even the heart. Like D.L. Moody once said, the law was not given to commend us, but to measure us that we might see the Savior. That the law has a ministry to point to Jesus because we see that we can't do it ourselves. Well, these guys didn't see that. They, in their own self-righteousness and pride, picked up s- stones, brought this woman to Jesus, and Jesus exposes. He exposes their hearts by reminding them of the law that they claim to follow. Jesus says, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in, in his heart. And it's very hard, especially in our day, not to fall short here. We're just like this woman. We're guilty too. We are polluted people, especially in our day with the internet and with you know, cell phones. I mean, when I talk to men, I'm like, guys, when I was a kid, and I had a buddy across, friend across town, his dad had a stack of porn in the closet. And, um, you know, I'd have to get on my bike and ride across town to to access that. But today, you can be sitting with your family, you know, as you're sitting in, in the living room watching a football game, and something can flash in front of you on your cell phone that is sexually stimulating. And that's the age we live in. And so by this standard that Jesus is giving us, nearly all of us have been tempted and struggled and sinned in this area with adulterous hearts. In the early days of Grace Life, we'd share an illustration. When we're talking about the nature of sin, we share the illustration of a sewer pipe. The idea is that the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it's kind of like we all spiritually have a sewer pipe in our basement. And what's in my sewer pipe? is no less or more disgusting than what's in your sewer pipe. And that should give all of us humility. Now, sometimes in our lives, the sewer pipe breaks and stuff spills out, right? We sin and we bring damage into our lives. Like a sewage pipe breaking, if it breaks in a basement, it's going to cause some damage to things around it. Carpet and furniture might never be the same. But let me ask you a question. Is what spilled out of someone else's sewer pipe what spilled out in someone else's life any more gross than what's still in your unbroken pipe than the sins that you still struggle with in your own heart that's why paul the apostle it seemed the older he got the more aware he became of his sin and of the depth of sin in his heart because by the end of his life not the beginning it was near the end of his life that he was saying i'm the chief of sinners because the closer you get to god the more you see it's all grace It's not me, it's Him. I stand by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. It's not my righteousness. It's not my achievements. It's not my moral record. It's Christ's moral record and my faith in Him. So then to understand this idea of the nature of sin, the indwelling sin in all of us, creates humility and compassion toward anyone who's in sin. We don't condemn anyone whose pipe is broken. All have sinned. And by the way, these religious elites... We're committing religious sins. The sins of pride and self-righteousness. In the eyes of Jesus, I think it's pretty clear that religious sins are no better in God's eyes than irreligious sins. Jesus was actually harder on those who sinned by trying to keep the law than by those who sinned by breaking the law. Jesus was harder on religious sinners than irreligious sinners. Because they didn't see it. And so here, Jesus is exposing that in these guys. So we all have... We all have trash. We all have guilt and shame. And I know a message like today when we're talking about a topic like this can compound the problem. Messages around this topic have the potential of magnifying guilt and shame. But Paul didn't mind doing it. So we shouldn't mind doing it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, for neither drunkards nor adulterers nor idolaters nor homosexual offenders will enter the kingdom of heaven pretty clear and then he says and such were some of you and you look at that and you go isn't that the devil's job to remind people of their past why is paul reminding people of their past because there's a way to look at your past where you are a healed person and it reminds you of the grace of god not your sin and shame and so paul's saying look backward remember remember the grace that was shown to you and show that same grace to others so you may be tempted to feel like you're the only one in the room who has sinned this way or struggled the way that you struggle. And I don't care what kind of sexual sin it is, and I'm not going to run the list. I think we, we all are familiar with a lot of the things that we can struggle with. But the, I, I think one of the devil's main tactics is isolation. To get you thinking you're the only one, that you're the only one, the only one who struggles with this temptation. You're the only one who struggles with this, this idea, this sin. That's why Paul said, there's no temptation to seize you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. But when you are tempted, he'll provide a way out so you can stand up under it. But these guys didn't see their sin until Jesus exposed it. You may feel temptation to hide and pretend. You may isolate yourself so that nobody can ever find out. I remember as a teenager, some of my struggles, I, 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 that was me. And until I brought it into the light and what I was struggling with, uh, I didn't find the, the depth of freedom that the Lord intended for my life. You might feel a temptation to just feel like you could never fit in with people who have kept such a high standard that everybody's better than you. But the teaching of Jesus here is that none of us have kept the standard. So you do fit in here at Grace Life. And while we do have a standard, we are not loved by God or by one another because we've been perfect or have kept that standard perfectly. We believe that we're recipients of God's love because Jesus kept the standard on our behalf and paid for our failures on the cross. So Jesus exposes their blindness to their own sin. And the next thing he does is he offers grace and forgiveness. This story, when I read this story, it begs the question. I think, you know, especially if you've never heard this story and you hear this story, it's like, was there anybody who would dare pick up a stone? Was there anybody there who could have cast a stone? And initially it seems like the answer is no, but look again, there was one who was there who could cast a stone. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. The one person who could have picked up a stone, according to the law of Moses, and bashed her head in, didn't do it. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. From now on, go and sin no more. And we need to hear this before we start, before we talk about God's design for biblical sexuality. Jesus Christ has a heart to forgive and cleanse sexual sin and sexual sinners. And he's proactive in doing it. He takes the initiative to forgive and cleanse her before he even tells her to change. This woman was caught in the act of adultery, and this was not a false accusation. It wasn't just the Pharisees who said she did it. The Bible, the divine author says that she was caught in the act of adultery. Yet at the end of the story, she's accepted by Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we have a great Savior. And we need to hear this in our day, perhaps more than any, because we are a room full of people who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God who is a judge of our lives and knows our thoughts and looks into our hearts. And by the way, it's probably worse than you think. <laughs> when we think about our sin and we start trying to weigh the scales, it's probably, we're probably in way worse of a condition than we can even imagine before God. We probably sin far more than we could even calculate. As the psalmist said, if you kept a record of our sins, who could stand you're a Christian. Jesus has paid for all of it. He said, it is finished. That was the same phrase that was used by tax collectors in that day when a debt was paid in full. It is finished. Jesus said that on the cross. The sin debt was paid in full. You are loved and accepted by God because he paid for your entire sin debt and took all your shame on himself on the cross. Every last bit of it. He drank every drop of punishment, every drop of the cup of God's wrath. And God will not punish the same sin twice. If it was punished in Christ, then we are not under judgment. We are under grace. And knowing this church, you'll be loved and accepted by this church because this church family believes in grace and believes that Jesus has really paid for it. There's this story that's told of a nun who claimed that she talked to God. And one of the local priests doubted this claim. So when he visited the convent, he asked her about it. He said, I heard you talk to God. She said, I do. He said, uh, well, next time you talk to him, ask him what the last sin was that I committed. See if he tells you. She said, I'll ask him. Some days went by and he went back to the convent and he saw the same nun. He said, so did you talk to God? She said, I did. And he said, uh, so uh, what, did, did, did he say anything about my sin? She said, uh, he did. What was the last sin was? What was the last sin that I committed was? What was it? And she said, he told me he doesn't remember. (laughs) Jesus takes a stand against those who refuse to offer grace. He forgives our sin. He forgives the sins of those who trust in him. And he frees us from our past. And the church should do the same. We should want to follow Jesus in being hard on religious folks who refuse to see their own sin and go on witch hunts to persecute sinners while offering radical grace and forgiveness to broken sinners because we have sinned just like they have. Legalists are hard on others and easy on themselves, like these Pharisees, while those who love God's grace are actually harder on themselves and easier on others. And there are some among professed Christians in our day, and it's been well-publicized at times, hasn't it, who have been cruel in their treatment of sexual sinners, and we want to be nothing like them. We want to love and offer forgiveness and grace, even to those who disagree with us. Jesus calls us to, calls us to love our neighbors, and there's no asterisk next to that command in a footnote that says, except for uh, your divorced neighbor, except for your cohabitating neighbors, except for your gay neighbor, except for your adulterous neighbor, Matt Chandler tells this story. We were actually talking about it over dinner at, uh, at the retreat at the table I was sitting at. Uh, he tells a story of when he was young in ministry, he, he went to a youth conference. And the, the youth minister got up there and, and he took this rose. And he was talking about sexual purity. And he passed the rose around. He said, pass it around during my message. And at the end of his message, he took the rose back. And of course, the rose was all broken down and messed up. It lost its leaves and petals. And he holds up the rose and he goes... Who would want this rose? If you pass yourself around sexually, this is what your life's going to look like. Who would want this rose? It was just so heavy and condemning. And Matt Chandler said, something rose up in my spirit. And I wanted to stand up and yell, Jesus wants the rose. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. We don't condemn. And as we say that, we have to look at the last thing Jesus does. Jesus tells her, to go and sin no more. And this is where it gets much more difficult to stomach in our culture, doesn't it? Jesus says, I don't condemn you. And we love that. America loves that. And then he says, go and sin no more. And this is hard to hear in America. As a culture, we like to hear, neither do I condemn you, but we hate to hear go and sin no more. In fact, we as a culture call that evil. Our culture says that to say sin no more is a condemning thing to say. That to say an action is wrong is to be judgmental. But Jesus, as he was offering radical forgiveness and grace, which we love to see, was also telling her to stop it, which we in America would say is judgmental. In an age of radical individualism, evil has been redefined, hasn't it? Evil is now defined as anything that stands between me and my personal happiness. So along comes a Jesus who says, I don't condemn you, but also says, stop. And some say that's evil. Let's think about this. Is Jesus being merciful and gracious or is he being judgmental? It can't be both. What is he being here to this woman? Jesus forgave the woman caught in adultery and he didn't condemn her, but in the same breath told her to go and sin no more. We like the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus, but sometimes we don't like to admit that we need it. We refuse to say in our society today, that we need forgiveness for some sexual activity, refusing to, refusing to allow others to call them to a better way. And that's wrong too. The sexual ethic in America is that if you have two consenting adults and it's not hurting anyone, they can do what they want without feeling like it's wrong, no harm, no foul. few things on that. <clears throat> Number one, Jesus did not say that here. He didn't say, these two are consenting, so it's okay. Let's not condemn them. That was not his reason for removing condemnation. He said, I don't condemn you, but it is a sin and you should stop. There's a better way. There's a better design. There's a divine design for sexuality. Because the plain fact is, we don't know ourselves, our psychological frailty, or how our decisions are affecting other people well enough to know whether or not we're even hurting anyone at all. If we start saying that God's design for sexuality, that God's design for marriage, that God's design for family aren't important, then we're discarding the very cell structure of society that he's designed. How can we say it's not hurting anyone? If we say, well, kid doesn't need a mom, two daddies will do. Kid doesn't need a dad, two mommies will do. Now, I'm not saying that those two daddies and those two mommies can't love those kids deeply. And love them well. But I am saying it it is a departure from God's design for the family. And God's design for marriage. And can we really say that's not hurting anyone? Today, in a modern world, we live in a world that doesn't want to call sin, sin. And that's that's a problem. But why do we think that way about morality and spirituality, but not anything else in society. Have you ever considered that? When it comes to medical analysis, we want the doctor to tell us the truth. We took tests. Here's the plain truth. You have this sickness and you're going to live this long. We don't want the doctor to lie to us and feed us some, you know, because they don't want us to feel uncomfortable. So I'm going to, I'm going to like hide the truth from you. We don't want that. We want a doctor who's going to tell us the truth because I want to know the truth about my, my health when it comes to finances, we want the same thing. We don't want some financial advisor to, to say, well, the investments you made are uh, they're actually really uh, good when you've lost 50% of your investment. You don't want a financial advisor like that. You want them to tell you the truth. If you go to your school guidance counselor, students, you want the truth about your academic standing. If you had a bad ACT score, you want to know what the score was. You don't want them to lie to you and tell you you got a different score. You want to know about your future prospects, whether or not you can get a scholarship. So when it comes to everything else, academics, finances, health, we want truth. But when it comes to spirituality, in America, everybody just wants to be told they're okay. When it comes to sexuality, in America, everybody just wants to be told they're okay, even if they are not okay. And to say anything else would be considered judgmental. And yet the scriptures warn us, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. See, Jesus, while he was ministering grace and mercy and forgiveness, didn't mind telling the truth. He said, go and sin no more. He said, it's a sin. Why? Because that's loving to say that. Wouldn't it be unloving if you knew someone was driving toward a ravine and didn't tell them? And since there is a wrong form of sexual expression, we need to hear a clear call to change. So how do we know what behaviors should change? We go to Jesus. He's the Lord. He said, he is the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So truth begins with him. He's the resurrected Christ. He's the author of life. So that gives him authority in our lives. And we need teachers and churches without being condemning or ever losing a grasp on grace that are willing to shoot straight with you when it comes to the teachings of the Bible. We need teachers and churches willing to call sin, sin, even if it's incredibly unpopular to do so. And we do that in the hope that we can also see people receive the grace of God to cover every sin and the love of a church community. So we want to do what he says in the Bible with our sexuality because he's Lord. And he's the designer and he's the Lord of all creation. He's the rightful king over every square inch of our lives, including the bedroom, including our bodies. The Bible calls any sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman sin. That includes fornication, adultery and homosexuality. There's a common argument out there that says that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. This is called an argument from silence, and debaters in law consider it the weakest form of argumentation. But Jesus also never mentioned idolatry. He also never mentioned bestiality. He also never mentioned incest. Now, I'm not saying that homosexuality or adultery are the same. But my, my point is, does the argument apply across the board? And it doesn't. But the plain fact is that Jesus lived in a day when much was assumed about sexuality because of the law of Moses. Jesus actually said in, John, in Matthew fifteen nineteen, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. In the original manuscripts in the Greek, that phrase, sexual immorality, is the Greek word porneia, and it speaks to all sex outside of biblical marriage between a man and a woman. So it's quite plain, actually, what Jesus' teaching was and his view was on this, as was the Scripture's. And yet we need to see it and tell the truth in love in the light of the grace of God that saves us. But we cannot receive the grace of God until we also see that we are fallen. That we are sinners that have fallen short of the glory of God. So how should Christians respond to culture when it comes to sexual sin? Number one, compassion. We need to understand that all forms of sexual sin, whether it's just sex addiction, you know, fornication, adultery, pornography, homosexuality. That these things are very difficult sins to come out of. And so we need to be very compassionate toward people that are caught in sexual sin. Very gentle in restoring them. You know, if you want to restore a building, you don't go in with a sledgehammer. Like when we renovated this place, there was actually a porn room. This was a video store. There was a porn room in the kitchen right there where the sinks are. There was this false, this, uh, this wall. And you could go behind it and there was like some pornography and stuff. And, and so I remember me and a couple other dudes grabbed sledgehammers. And we we're just, knock down the porn wall just smashing it. We were not restoring that part of the building. We were renovating. But what if you're restoring? Like what if you go into an old house, you know, from the 1700s and you want to restore it. And there's this old molding on the wall, right? You're going to gently take that mold. You're not going to smash through it. You're going to gently take that molding off the wall and set it aside. Why? Because you want to put it back on. You want to damage it. And when it comes to sexual sin and sexual sinners, we need that attitude of restoration, not renovation. We need to have extreme caution, care, and gentleness as we're speaking to people who are caught in these sins in and out of the church. Number two, how should Christians respond to culture? Remember your sin and that there's no sin that's a special sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And let the fact that you are a sinner saved by grace. As you remember that, let that minister humility and grace to another person because after all, all evangelism is and telling other people about Jesus is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Number three, don't condemn. Love everyone. Jesus could sit at the table with the worst irreligious sinners and he could sit at the table with the high religious elites and the religious sinners. And we should be able to as well. Without condemnation, without judgment, and th- this is this is sort of my um, opinion. Okay, I'm not necessarily exegeting scripture here when I when I say this, but I think we need to understand there's a difference between pro freedom and pro uh, LGBTQ and pro homosexuality. I'm for freedom. Like I, if two people, this is my opinion. If two people want to. Uh, bring their resources together in a civil union and share that that's, you know, it's a free country. Uh, I'm not going to stand in the way of that. Right. And and I don't want to, I don't want to in enacting laws that prohibit worldviews and behaviors that I oppose. I don't want to create a self inflicting wound against the church that would come back on us and limit our freedoms. So I'm pro freedom. uh, and, And part of that means if someone wants to live in America, in a free country, uh, in a way that is outside of my worldview, this is America and they they can live like that. But if someone wants to become a Christian, we're going to have a different conversation because God says no about some of these things. And so to become a Christian means that you need to submit your sexuality to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And uh, every relationship ultimately is restricting, isn't it? I mean, if you're going to commit to someone at the, at, an, at a the altar of marriage... What woman would commit to a man that said, uh, I will love and cherish you and honor you, uh, sickness and health till death do us part, for 364 days out of 365 days a year? She'd be like, what are you going to do that other day? I noticed this other girl down the road, and she's... I mean, you're number one, but she's, she's number two. I mean, you're still number one. I do have a number two, though, just full disclosure. What woman would commit to a man under those circumstances? What am I saying? Love restricts our choices. And so Jesus says, whoever would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, then you're going to make me your primary love. The one great overarching love in your life that is going to rearrange every other love in your life and put it in the right place. So my final... Encouragement for how we interact with culture is encourage anyone who wants to follow Christ to submit their sexuality to Jesus. Jesus accepts anyone struggling with any sin. I don't care what sin you're struggling with. You are allowed to be tempted by any sin and be a Christian. And I think that's been a big problem with the church too, especially when it comes to homosexuality. We claim that if someone has same-sex attraction, that there's no room for them in the church. And that is simply not true. God calls us to submit our sexuality to him and his design for that, but it doesn't mean that the temptation for some would ever even go away. One of the pastors in our church um, in Emmanuel that we attended for a while before we started the church in Clarksville um, is very open about the fact that he considers himself to be a a gay man in the sense that he has same-sex attraction, but he's, he's submitted his sexuality to Jesus, And God's designed for that, and he's seeking to live a celibate life unto the Lord. Uh, And at the same time, it's just something he's been tempted with his whole life. But there's grace for that. There's grace to cover him as he submits his sexuality to Jesus. And I think the difference is, are you celebrating your sin? Or are you battling your sin? Are you submitting your sin to Jesus Christ? That's the difference between, I think, the fruit of the Spirit in a Christian and someone who hasn't really had a a changed heart and understand what Jesus is calling us to in the scriptures when he says, go and sin no more. So the the call to follow Christ is the call to submit every other love to the greatest love of all. So people say, you know, in in our society today, well, I can't help who I love. I just love who I love. And I don't doubt that that love is real in a lot of those contexts and a lot of those relationships. But the call of the gospel is to Follow Jesus as the greatest treasure and the greatest love of all in your life. The love that says to you, neither do I condemn you. So no no matter who you love or what you love, we are called to submit all of our loves to Christ and make him our greatest love. And that will help us arrange the other loves in our lives in the right places. And some of those things need to be demoted. And some of those need to be put in the right place in our lives. We are called to... Orbit our lives around Jesus, not ask Jesus to orbit his life around me and what I want, but we orbit our lives around him and what he wants. That's the difference between a true follower of Christ and a disciple of Christ and someone who really, I think, is still wrestling with the implications of the gospel that call us to bow before Jesus and accept his sacrifice as our our sufficient payment for our sin debt. And then follow the command to follow him as he called us to himself. So no matter who you love or what you love, submit all your loves to Christ and make him first. And There's a lot more we could talk about around this topic. And in a lot of ways, in preparing this message, I had to take out a lot of what could be said around this topic. But let's finish where we started. The most important important, uh, point in this whole topic is Jesus. So I want to say what he said one more time as we consider this topic of sexual ethic, sexual sin, and sexual sinners. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And aren't you glad that if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. We have one who defends us before the Father. I think Romans 7 in the Bible tells us that struggling and continuing to struggle at times in our Christian lives is the normal Christian experience. That we shouldn't have this picture of the person who comes to Christ you finally and utterly uh, having all temptation in their lives removed. Because that's that's, I don't think the Bible offers that. I think the Bible tells us that He covers us. It's uh, simil et el peccator, as Martin Luther called it in Latin. That I'm simultaneously saint and sinner in the eyes of the gospel. That Christ, my righteousness, covers me while he's perfecting me, while I struggle, while I'm tempted, and while I move toward him. And I'm sanctified to become more like Jesus, which won't be completed in this life, will be ultimately completed when I see him face to face.